1: Welcome to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. With me today is author, presenter and naturalist Mike Dilger to talk about his new book, Nightingales in November. So... Mike, we're in spring. Nightingales sing in spring. Why Nightingales in November? Well, Nightingales in November, the main title is designed people to uh, think really,
0: Fergus. Nightingales, November. They aren't here in November. Um, The the, the other title of the book, which is probably a little bit more kind of explanatory of what the book's about is, A Year in the Lives of 12 British Birds. And I think a lot of people think about nightingales, April, May, here they are, they're singing, they're doing their thing. And by the end of June, they've gone completely quiet. uh, And then obviously, they've got about the business of mating. And then probably by August, they're away. And it's only recently we've found out where nightingales are doing and what they're doing throughout the rest of the year. So I've picked 12 very different yet iconic British birds and trying to talk about what they're doing throughout the year. For example, everyone knows about the cuckoos. You know, the cuckoos, they'll be here in, I would think, probably about a couple of weeks, hopefully, kind of the end, well, kind of middle end of April uh, with our iconic call. Uh, But the most amazing thing is all this work done with the BTO and satellite tracking cuckoos, They've actually found out Chris, the famous cuckoo named after Chris Packham, was a, is actually generally only here for about six weeks of the year. That's,
1: that's extraordinary. We, we consider them our birds, like swallows. As it's well, considered it actually, a British bird. The cuckoo is a British bird, but actually, really, it's an African. We're bird. We're borrowing African birds for a, a few brief months.
0: It's spending effectively six months of the year in sub-Saharan Africa, and then spending six weeks in in Britain, uh, and then spending the rest of the time the kind of the six months plus the six weeks kind of either either kind of moving to Africa or moving to Britain in this amazing circuitous route. So I'm trying to really kind of map what all these birds are doing throughout the year. And there are certain birds, for example, I've got a number of resident birds like robin. And, you know, we see robins for most of the year. Um, But it's trying to kind of unveil a bit of their secret lives as to what they're doing when they're not immediately obvious. And it's been a real challenge. It's effectively taking 12 different birds and we talk about these things called monographs, which is... um, Derek Ratcliffe's Peregrine. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A single or Eileen
1: species, a single species in one great volume. Yeah. Precisely.
0: You know, the, yeah. the tome, or Eileen Reese's Buick Swan. And I'm hopefully kinda of, hope, hopefully interweaving kind of twelve beautiful stories of twelve very different
1: life histories of very well known birds seamlessly together. Well, I really like I I've, I've read quite a lot of this and I really like the way it's, it's it brings that the homely birds such as blue tits and robins and then you have your puffins and Buick swans and a whole host of others that sort of come and go. It's really a nice pace to a book to have that blend of stories coming together each month, even though some of them are miles away in southern Africa. Uh, Obviously, you're a a well-travelled man with all your work. Um, Some of the legwork's been done by... um, Satellite tracking is that right? The satellite tracking is the most amazing kind of technical revelation. Um,
0: certainly, kind of satellite tracking of cuckoos, which the with the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, have kind of pioneered recently, and it is just revealed the most amazing amount so of information. Is
1: it like a little satchel you put on their backs or something? Or yeah, it? it's effectively
0: it's a GPS uh, locator that's a, a transmitter that basically kind of bounces signals to, to satellites and then the, the, the BTO can kind of receive that data, I think every 12 or every 24 hours and it's got a battery, so it recharges with a, so, a solar charger so the battery can get recharged and, and the, the famous cuckoo Chris for example, has been followed for four years and unfortunately Last summer it disappeared somewhere
1: in the Sahara. Right. Did the thing stop or was the bit you just assumed the bird had
0: Nobody perished, quite knows. In the because of course they're kind of crossing the Sahara, which each cuckoo will do um twice a year. Yeah. They'll do it obviously in the spring, and they're probably just about to cross the Sahara now. And obviously at some point in the autumn, they'll cross uh, back down south. And they've been we, we knew that they kind of wintered somewhere south of the Sahara, but now we found out they're wintering in these places called the Western Congolian Swamp Forests, and well, there's, a, there's a whole kind of bundle yeah. of forests. There's a kind of like Central African Republic, and then there's the, the Republic of Congo, then there's the big one, Old Zaire, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's somewhere very close to the huge Zaire-Congo River, which sits in between the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's amazing swamp forest wow, where sorry. elephants are, where gorillas are, and also where the Pygmy, the, the Congo Pygmies are as well. So it's chosen one of the remote, weird, Unbelievable places that hardly anybody knows. They're virtually impenetrable, that, these places. That's an
1: extraordinary story. So they could, I mean, I have. Cook, I live in the Bracken Beacons. We have cookies up on the hills. But they're quite tame hills, lots of sheep in the, in the Bracken and the heather. So they go from that, seeing a few walkers in anoraks, to seeing um, uh, elephants uh, gorillas. Uh, gorillas, all sorts of things in the deepest impenetrable jungles left in Africa, really. And, and yeah.
0: Even though we know that, we still know very little about what they're doing and what in they're the eating. African Congo. Yeah. We suspect, for example, that they're well known to kind of eat things like unpalatable caterpillars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they make a living out of kind of finding those woolly bears that mm. everything else avoids. So we can only assume they're spending their time in the canopy, eating caterpillars, eating katydids all manners of kind of moths and butterflies. But we don't really know. They don't sing, certainly in Africa. They only really have that iconic cuckoo that the whole time they're here. I when they're and here. the really interesting thing, as well, Fergus, is that they've found from this amazing journey of the cuckoo is that some of them will travel down to Africa via Italy and some will go via the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain. So Chris, for example, was going down via Italy and stopping in the River Po Delta in northern Italy, feeding up, getting himself nice and fat, before he then basically took on the Mediterranean over the Atlas Mountains, all the way across Sahara, and then dropping into southern Chad, around Lake Chad, where he'd go... (laughs) Basically have a metaphorical cigarette, kind of feed up, and then he'd slowly work his way down to Congo. But the most amazing thing is, once they're in the Congo, Chris and a few other cuckoos were then spending most of the time in these forests, and then going down uh, even further south, and then spending some time in the kind of arid area around Angola then he'd go back to the Congo and then actually he'd not go back via Chad but he'd go round what we call the armpit of Africa mm. into kind of Sierra Leone Ghana spend some time there before he smashes and it really is a smash right back over the Sahara the Atlas Mountains over the Mediterranean before they land in Italy in or a, Spain in the space
1: of what a week or so or even less
0: even less than that mm. they reckon that, that some of the cuckoos go from Italy over to southern Chad and we're talking 48 hours wow. Wow. So so they're basically going tailwinds.
1: quite high. Tailwinds, or just they,
0: a... they may well try and catch tailwinds, but it, it's kind of guesswork, really. Uh, and that's just one bird, the cuckoo. That yeah. suddenly, you know, we've been ringing cuckoos for 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 hun- well, for kind of probably a hundred years, but only now through this technology, finding out what
1: they're doing and where they're spending their time. So there's lots of surprises in this book. But what was the biggest surprise for you personally? Because you're you're an ex- you've been birding for years and years and you're a wildlife expert but what was the biggest thing that made you sort of sit up and go blimey
0: well common birds how little we know about common birds you know the most have a guess Fergus the most ringed bird in Britain
1: what do you think the most ringed bird is oh it's probably a swan is it or rather than a, rather than a surprisingly frog. because they go into boxes it's a blue tit. oh right okay. so blue
0: tits so they, they reckon they ring close oh, we'll to a million yeah, yeah. blue tits yeah. have, have been wrong in Britain but we know so little about this bird we know what's happening now they're singing the trees that, gee, 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 yeah. that lovely little kind of song. The territorial male. We know when they're going in and out of boxes. We know when they they have one brood a year. They all burst out of a box one morning. 12 14 chicks. We know probably only one of those chicks a year will survive yeah, to they, breed.
1: They feed the local cats and the sparrowhawks. Yeah. They feed the local <laughs> cats
0: and sparrowhawks. They're cannon. Most of them are cannon fodder. Yeah, but actually, you know, after they after they disperse into the um, canopy and the, the parents will stay with them for about a week. What happens to them? They just kind of melt away, and we know in winter they form these mixed flocks with kind of grape tits and tree creepers, possibly nuthatches, uh, long-tailed tits, and marsh they're tits. They're raised
1: bird feeders, quite. Yeah, and they kind of yeah. come in.
0: But the most amazing facts found out by kind of Mike Toms who works at the, works at the BTO, he reckons in the co- in the course of a winter you'll probably find a thousand different blue tits coming into your garden. So they kind of all join these little these little yeah, groups. That's incredible. So yeah. it's actually kind of finding out quite a lot about. these these common birds, you know, not until I read all the research work and chatted to all the experts, I I finally kind of started to kind of understand a little bit more about blue tits. And it's peregrines. You know, at the moment, peregrines are kind of screeching across the skies. In Bath, they've just laid their fourth egg, the clutch that are breeding on St. John's Church. But, you know, what they do in July, August, September, who knows? They just kind of disperse. The young kind of spread around, do a tour of the West Country. Some of them go abroad, some of them come back. And it was, for me, the challenge was trying to find out what these birds are doing when they aren't so evident, when they aren't so visible.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting because they only really sing for a, a relatively few months, this sort of dawn chorus. And that's something I desperately urge people to get out to, to listen to now before it's gone by mid June, mid July, and that sort of time. I don't, I'd like to ask you, you know, moving on from the book, but where would you go this spring? Where is your favorite place to go this spring to listen to a dawn chorus or to hear, or just to go and see spring birds? In Britain, obviously. I have to
0: say, at the moment, the dawn chorus is quite sensational. We're kind of slightly twixt, cup and lip. The first migrants are coming back. I live just south of Bristol near Chew Valley Lake and I was out there seeing San Martins, one of the first migrants back and Swallows were back and I also saw one house martin. The Chiff Chaff's already singing. That. Yes, that's chif-chaff, pretty recognisable. Chif-chaff. Slightly different meter to the great two, which is teacher, teacher, teacher. Yes. I would say the best place to hear my own dawn, uh, my dawn chorus is my own back garden yes. because... You know, the reason for moving out of Bristol was that I live, you know, nine miles south of Bristol, but in the middle of nowhere. I can open the curtains in the morning. I had missile thrush singing, song thrush, blackbird, uh, the... the Blue tits are going bonkers, and also the first chiffchaffs are back. The black cap, hopefully, will be back soon. So my own back garden, but I advise you to go out anywhere, kind of any local woodland, even in a suburban area. You'd be amazed, and because the the, the key time to go out and hear the dawn chorus is maybe kind of five, five thirty, and that's before kind of cities largely wake up. So you get this period, and where, where they're all going for it, and there's this lovely stratification where birds come in, like the robin will sing first, and then you'll get things like uh, you get the black cupping on then the blue tick coming in and then you get the kind of maybe house sparrow chirping away and then the kind of finches are really late the green is always late out of bed yeah. and the chaff <laughs> that and that's always one of the latest. So you get this real stratification as to when they come into the dawn chorus. And that's a great way to kind of go and learn bird song is just go out there with your binoculars and just immerse yourself in it. Great. Hear a song, look at the bird, and hopefully put two and two together, and then you'll kind of learn it.
1: Yeah, that's how I did it years ago, and it's one of the great treats to be able to go into a woodland and not have to stare through the canopy. You can actually. Like up, you, Fergus, uh, I learned. I learned the birds on my
0: own. No one went out and told me that's a wren singing, that's a robin, that's a song thrush. I kind of learnt them slowly, but I learnt them well because I kind of heard the song and thought I recognise that song, but I can't see the bird. And then hopefully, you know, you get you get both together, and then you kind of. It, you get 20 or
1: 30 ride. and then after that it's oh I don't know that one and you begin it's to find it's even fight, less yeah, than that
0: yeah. you know, once you know Robin and you Ren and Dunnock and Song Thrush and Blackbird you know five You've once you know those five you can pick up the more unusual ones
1: yeah that's a brilliant tip actually and uh, yeah again uh, one thing to, to, to really try this spring learn learn your bird song I can't um, recommend to people enough about the kind of joy of getting outside it's yeah. good for
0: mind it's good for body it's good for soul it's I'm very unmusical but just uh, Somehow the 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 songs just kind of burn in my brain. I know I know every British bird, song by song.
1: Yeah, what a skill, what a skill. And um, are you uh, is there particular birds you'd like to track down this year, or are you sort of beyond the the sort of. Dashing to far places to—is there will, a particular species? Yeah, yeah.
0: There's the twi- the t-word, the twitch. Yeah, yeah. Word. I will twitch stuff that's very local to where I am. So, for example, last last autumn, the Hudsonian Godwit was down on the Somerset Levels, and I couldn't resist. Yeah. It was <laughs> the first bird my three-year-old son ever saw through his tel through
1: the telescope. That's I expensive.
0: lined it up on the bird. He put his eye. Up. He "No, he is like bird daddy bird." It's like that's a very very rare bird. Yeah, there, so.
1: blown over here by a storm, presumably. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah.
0: It must have been blown over from kind of east uh, western United States. Um, yeah, yeah, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky the fact that I, I get to kind of birdwatch in my day job. and had a fantastic day's filming last week. We were filming Great Grey Shrikes, which, as we all know, maybe 40 or 50 of them overwinter here. Comes down from Norway, Sweden, Scandinavia. And it was a fantastic day in the Forest of Dean. We were filming this bird sitting high on a tree. It was a beautiful sunny day. And it would fly 50, 60 metres directly down, catch a lizard, a common lizard, yeah. having just emerged from hibernation. <laughs> That's bad luck, yeah. And then, and then naked. It was <laughs> yeah. just. It was just the most wonderful. Day of what were you filming for? Is this Is a new series? That's for the one show. One show. Filming okay. for one show. So it's a, a little kind of four minute item on on the Great Great Shrike. And then next week, one. hopefully, I'm going up to to kind of film Caporchiali. And that really is an amazing kind of sound. Hearing that. Yes. Have you heard? Tom, no. Never Cap-or?
1: seen. Never heard. Um, as one for the for the next big Scotland trip, which have one... definitely
0: got to do. And it's you know because of course, like the black grouse, it's it's a lecking species, and it's got this amazing call. It sounds like a kind of it sounds like the kind of um, almost kind of hooves, and then there's a kind of pop like that, and then there's this kind of pig squeal like it's at its throat, Kurt. It's the most amazing
1: kind of yeah. kind
0: of collection of kind of weird noises yeah. together. It
1: might account for quite a few Scottish myths and legends, i suspect. <laughs> yeah, Probably. <laughs> um, if we talk about your book, I obviously I've got lots of books that have influenced me, but what about you? Do you have a favourite nature writing book or book of the countryside that has been, it could be non-fiction, but something that you fall back on or re- would recommend to Listeners, I have got
0: uh, an absolutely enormous book collection. It, it, I mean, frankly, I'm a book addict. I just, I'm trying to limit myself, Fergus, to two books a week. <laughs> I've just about managed that this week. I've just bought Feral by George Monbiot, which I'm hoping to read over the next couple of weeks. And I want to read Mark Avery's Inglorious, all about the Gunner Grouse shooting. Yes, I've read Just to so kind of, you know, just so I'm kind of more aware of, of kind of the pros and cons. And you know, Mark is a very kind of ardent and proactive conservation So they're the two books that I'm going to hopefully read in the next few weeks. Um, I would say the book that is kind of exciting me and turned me on more than anything else is Richard maybe's Flora Botanica because people kind of think of myself me as a birder but actually I studied botany at university and these days I'm a bit of an all-rounder I like butterflies I like dragonflies but I'm a very very keen botanist and it was just a revelation when that book came out it's about looking at plants in an entirely new way and for a presenter like me you know it's um you know it, it's 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 Gold dust. It's a gold mine. Because I can kind of pick out the most amazing nuggets. There's stuff on folklore. Oh, that's kind of wonderful. Ancient yeah. names of these plants, kind of wonderful little anecdotes all about these things. So they talk about kind of primrose being the kind of prima rosa and kind of all the all the ancient names of these of these plants. It's a fantastic book, and it's a really new way of talking about plants, which to a lot of people are kind of quite dry. But for me, they're the most important thing because it's the you know, in my garden. I'm a really keen wildlife gardener, and the, it's all about plants because the plants will attract the insects, yeah. the insects will attract the mammals, the insects will attract the birds. But you've got to get the plants right, and so by learning your you, you kind of your, your cultivated plants and your your wild British plants, you be, you will become a much better naturalist. Ah, fantastic! Okay, good more good Floral tips. Botanica, Richard maybe. Yeah. It's just, I I'm very gr- wise, I love but... dip into books and it's yeah. the perfect dip into book.
1: Good recommendation. Brilliant. But well, listen, your book is a hugely optimistic read and, and will encourage more people to get out into the countryside. So thanks very much for revealing its secrets to us.
0: Fergus, absolutely pleasure. Great to catch up with you. And as ever, it's the book is optimistic and it's all about making people appreciate what's on their own doorstep. And that's what it's all about, kind of having another look at the blue tits and having a look at the robins and glowing in wildlife.
1: Let's get them out there. (laughs) Let's get them out there. That's the message. Mike's book, Nightingales in November, is published by Bloomsbury Books and is available from mid-May. And thank you very much for listening to this podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. You can find more of our podcasts at countryfile.com.